This is Lead Stories. I'm Utrecht Lead, and good to join you again. Uh, We are going to return to our subject that we broached yesterday. We had quite a few people who didn't get in on the discussion, so I, I really like the idea of trying to accommodate everybody because there, there are so many points of view that should be heard. So we're going to bring that back to us today. And we were talking about elections and politics uh, and how our views individually are shaped by our political realities. How do we frame it? What happens uh, in the, the combination of our own experiences combined with, you know, the discussions of the day, people are talking about things and media covering things, and somehow people fashion their own interpretation of what politics comes to be, what it what it does, what its impact it is. Excuse me. And so, how do we form our political reality? How do we get to that place? What are the elements of it? And now that we are facing an election, uh, it's good to go in that place and find out in the interim period between the last election and now, how has our opinion evolved and changed? If, if it is, if it in fact has, what were the, 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 the forces that we were responding to? What has ended up being the aggregate of our thinking about politics? How do we end up with a political perspective? It's a very important question. We don't really think of it that way. We just think of of the simpler question of, well, who are you going to vote for? Who do you like? What do you think is going to happen in this election? But we seldom permit ourselves to review for ourselves what our own political uh, journey has been in the interim period, last election and the, the one that we face now. And how does that in turn drive our decision, our political decision? How we, do we formulate our own interpretation of our political reality. It sounds all complicated and everything, but it's it's really not that complicated. It is it is understandable. You're living, you're breathing, you're observing things, things are impacting on you. And so you try to make sense of your environment. You try to make sense of the forces that are shaping your reality. And then in turn, that reality translates into your own political action. 
Are you aware of that? Do you ever stop to think that your political reaction isn't just a reflex action, but it is a culmination of a lot of things that you have picked up and observed and pondered and read about and talked about with others. And you come up with something that for yourself serves as your, your political guide, where you fall on the axis of politics. Where are you? Are you in the middle? Are you left? Are you right? Are you dead center? Are you of no opinion yet? We, we don't know. But it is important to start asking ourselves these questions because whether we are conscious of it or not, we are actually evolving and living it every single day. 888-874-4888. So we, we will tack on to what we did yesterday. And yesterday we were discussing where we are leaning toward or what is shaping or what so far has shaped our political outlook. And now we, we can go a little further and find out for ourselves, although we, we may not have been conscious of it, but when you stop and think about it, you can see how things in life, occurrences in life, uh, end up playing a major role in shaping your political reality. That's very, very important to be conscious of. 888-874-4888 is a number to call. And I would like to know from you today, not just where you're leading politically, but what would you say is a definitive uh, turning point in shaping your political reality? What has happened, or how did you arrive? At what point did you formulate in your head some kind of a political position, some kind of uh, identity that you you are framing yourself as? You have a political identity. What is that identity? What shaped it? or continues to shape it. Are you, are you aware of that? Uh, sometimes we don't think that we are constantly being shaped by the events in our lives. Uh, it's uh, one of those things we just keep going. But when we stop to think, we can usually identify something that stands out in our own consciousness as a point in which we, we, we made a change or we are conscious, but in a different way. Jackie from Brooklyn, you start us off today. What are your thoughts? Hey, hi, good afternoon. I'm so happy that you're back, that you're Me well. And that, uh, <laughs> yeah, we really, really missed you. I said, oh, if I knew how to call you, you personally, I would have called you. <laughs> but I'm glad you're well, and I'm glad you're back. Okay, thank you. This is, um, thank you, Utrees. 
Yeah, your question is uh, requires uh, a lot of thought and depth, and um, I'll do, I was taking notes as you were asking the question. Okay, so yes. I'll try to answer some of it. Uh, I believe uh, what shapes my political reality is uh, life experiences as we uh, go through different seasons of our lives we uh, we recognize that our needs change and then we wonder how is the um, governmental process responding responding to those needs i agree with the callers of yesterday the only problem that i have is if you just say you're going to function on a local level, then you have to face the reality that a lot of funding and uh, governmental resources come from state and national funding. So I don't know if you just, if voters feel, oh, I can only interact on a local level because that impacts my life directly, then the issue of funding and sources and resources uh, you're not really voicing an opinion when it comes to that. Now, the problem I share with everyone else is that we, the people, the populace, we really don't see any um, response to the needs of the people. And on a local and not local, national and um, statewide level. And so, therefore, everyone begins to feel uh, that, you know, your needs are not being addressed, your voice is not really being heard. And I am aging now, and I have, my needs are very different than they were when I was in my 30s and 40s. But at the same time, as your needs uh, change, you also begin to look at how are budgets being put together, how is money being spent, uh, what is the, what is the uh, government doing and addressing the needs of the people. And that's that's kind of like where we're at today. People, um, some people have stopped voting altogether. I haven't stopped voting, but I'm almost very close to it, even though I've been voting for a very long time. Um, because it's the issue of what is a real viable candidate who's going to address the needs of the people. And that's the problem. And, uh, you know, we I think we've talked about a little bit about third-party candidacies and all of that. But it's very difficult for, for, you know, upstarts or people who want to go in a different direction to really gain seats of uh, power and authority because the existing structure will not let them in. So, I mean, this is a problem. And we see this over and over and over again. Um, so, uh, would it be your position then that change, political change, um, has to be looked at also in terms of how political parties respond to political needs? I agree, but I think the only way, and I don't see how this could happen, the only way political change can come about is the existing structures have to be changed. They have to be modified or completely abolished. 
Now, um, the, you can't expect Congress people and senators to vote against their own interests, but that's the reality that we live under. Those people, for the most part, who hold elective office, they operate in their own best interests, not in the interests of the, uh, of the uh, electorate, their constituents. And we see this in the Medicare. I don't even want to start enumerating. You can't name one aspect in this society which has not gotten a fair deal in terms of the people now. I'm talking about the people's needs. If you start with medical coverage, if you start with uh, housing, and things are going to get worse as the economy is getting uh, worse. And now we're going to be faced with uh, heating oil and oil uh, prices and all of that. And uh, people are going to really feel this. You know, I'm feeling it. We're all feeling it. And I'm just one human being, you know. But I know from being a senior and speaking to other seniors who are aware, uh, they, they see that something's terribly wrong. But the choices that are offered to the populace is... I mean, what what good is it? What choices do we really have? Unless there's a complete overhaul and getting people out of office and getting people in who vote uh, the needs of the people. But the structure is so terrible, I don't see how the structure could be changed from within. Hmm. Well, you never know. Somebody may have an idea. But thank you so much for getting us started today. And, and so profoundly, uh, well, getting us started very profoundly today, and I thank you for that. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. Ernie from Brooklyn, you're on the air. What have you to say? Well, Yatrice, I, I sometimes you sound like a professor trying to extract an answer from some students that uh, listen to your you talk about the lesson plan of the day. And to me, I think the the only answer is that uh, good, bad, or indifferent, you have to participate in politics. Politics. Ah, okay. You touched on the magic answer. See, you have to I be know. involved. Exactly. And the whole fact is we, uh, myself, uh, uh, have been uh, jaded by uh, slavery, you know, I have been in this, come from a stock of enslaved people. Now, the whole fact is that it was politics that enslaved me. It was politics that, and and my efforts that freed me. And the thing is, if you are not participating in politics, then it's why the problems that the lady enumerated was I'll always be there because they control that, you know? And, you know, we seem to think of politics as something that is so broad, but yet it is so basic. It's who control what you're doing. And I think... So are you saying, Ernie, if I understand you, is there any hope for people to think the way that we've been taught to think, which is politics is an expression of our collective thinking and action 
on issues that matter to us all? Well, we like to think of it like that. But actually, uh, politics are being puppeteered. Uh, that they are pleasing the people, uh, the boss who's in control. Now, I was back in school in the 60s or so, and actually... Oh, you're you're breaking up, Bernie, so you might want to talk a little closer uh, to the phone. They were saying that, that, that... Corporations were going to control America, and they were going to secure people from uh, birth to death. And, you know, it was a a Trojan horse in a sense because when they came in, they did well, and they exploited and sort of uh, went around the world. They made – they are in such control now that they control the – you know, when we romance about anything – in our past, we think about uh, how well everybody is, uh, you know, is doing. But you know, we cannot. You know, they, they have taken control of the politicians. Politicians are hopeless. I see right here in New York, where politi- uh, politicians come in, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, very intelligent, educated, and everything. They get into office and they realize that they cannot uh, succeed on that, and they don't know anything. So they are directed to more or less appease the people that got them elected more than the people that they proclaimed that they wanted to be working for. You treat when I was young, there were teachers, were the leaders that showed people how to go. And then the reverends took it over, and they showed people how to go. And then from the reverends, they went to the politicians. The politicians were uh, hopelessly corrupt, mostly. But it's your only hope, because if you don't get it right, you cannot hope that the politicians will get it right. And like the lady alluded to, basically, Jackie, 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 I'm sorry. Thank you. That, you know, you can't, it's the system because you cannot control the politicians if he's getting his, uh, his money, uh, his re-election money from somebody else. And if the system... So let's, let's say we accept your analysis as as true and factual. People have no way at all of having any impact or in any way interacting with a political system that actually responds to the needs of people? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that people have to be more participatory into their political uh, feelings, and they can't just think of how it affects me and how it's affecting me now. Uh, they have to participate in it. They have to support it. Now, uh, if you have, say, a real estate interest supporting 
uh, a certain uh, 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 political party or candidate, then when that person or party gets elected, they are going to uh, cater to the political interests. It's not going to cater to the people, even though the person or the politicians uh, uh, excited the people that voted for him or them, her, or whatever, they excited them with words that I am going to take care of you. I'm going to show you the road and the light. But that is not so, and it doesn't happen because they are curtailed. And, you know, all the problems we had, we've had them for a long time. And people come in and they live about what they want to do and what they can do and what they do and what happens. And Latrice, we have another little problem. You see, when the right comes in, the right curtails or cut out the, pro- uh, the, 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 the programs that the left uh, uh, had set up. And when the left comes back in, they don't want to go too far away from what the right, because the right has always lead us. When we think about where this country and where we have come from, Every incremental change is like, oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing best for the people, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do. Well, I'm trying to see where, within what you're saying, there is hope. And I'm having a rough time locating hope. Well, (laughs) I'm sorry. It is a bad time. It's true. You're right. And I understand what you're saying. But it's true. And it's still the only hope that you have. There is no no other hope. But then I think that you have to be your own salvation. You know, there was an old, old joke from a long, long time about shine. And supposedly only you can save yourself. And uh, I heard something somebody else wrote that, you know, a, a prophet is only uh, listened to, uh, is mostly rejected by his community, you know? And as I told you about the, the teacher and the, the, the religious leaders and then the politicians, and, and when I thought the politicians, we needed someone that was so dynamic, so special, and I think that person manifests itself in Barack Obama. I think he was the brother like no other. But do you think that the people would say, well, I'm going to look to Barack Obama to show me the way, like, say, the right does for Trump? It just didn't happen, you know? And if we don't do it ourselves. Nobody else is going to do it. A politician is not going to do it. And you can't expect them to. They are making, chances are, most times, they are making twice or three times the amount of money that they were making on a regular job being a politician. And, of course, they want to keep that job. And how can you blame them? Well, I want to thank you for this this window that you've opened up so that we can inspect a little further. What accounts for our predicament? What is our predicament? 
and how do we tackle it? Thank you so much, Ernie, for calling in and contributing today. Patricia from New York, you're on the air. Patricia dropped. Hello, Patricia, you're on the air. Patricia dropped. Okay, so this is a good time then. We lost Patricia. We'll take a break and come back to your calls at 888-874-4888, right after this. to Lead Stories on PRN.FM. I'm Eutrice Lead, and we continue this discussion uh, having to do with our understanding of our political reality and how and why we make the choices that we do and how and why we must make choices uh, that help us into the realms of power uh, which we invest in all the time, but we don't seem to get uh, just returns. Patricia, or is it Patricia on the line? Oh, good afternoon, you, Teresa. It's Patricia from New York calling. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm on the mend, you, Teresa. I'm on the mend. Different body parts are trying to fail me, but I have... <laughs> But I, I keep telling them I'm in control. They're not in control. Yeah, that, in control. That's right. Keep them in line. Tell them that's right. The that's, boss right. Here. that's right. <laughs> it is so good to hear your voice and hear the listener's voice. I've missed everyone. Me too. Me too. So the question for today, you know, unfortunately, um, the population engages in groupthink. They're not independent thinkers anymore. The psychology that has been derived to make people move in the direction that you want them to move has been extremely successful. And so I think everyone has articulated well that this that that we we really have to begin to think of a different solution. I've been thinking about this a lot because if you look at what has happened, so take for instance the um, the COVID vaccine. You know, if you remember in the very beginning, they told everyone that if they took the vaccine, they wouldn't get COVID. That was the initial narrative. And then of course the population said, oh, my government would not harm me. Everybody went out, got the vaccine, and then of course everybody started getting COVID. So the next narrative was, well, if you get it, if you get take the vaccine, you might get it, but you won't be able to transmit it. Well, then, of course, we, uh, we recognize that they had to backtrack on that narrative also. So now the narrative is, if you take the vaccine, you won't die. <laughs> that is, I'm, I'm afraid that is the narrative today. You know, I, I, I'm I trying to convince to myself that what you're relating here is, Progressive thinking. 
<laughs> I, uh, okay, so I give you the following example. Uh, Mr. Burlab, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he's the CEO of Pfizer. And as you know, Pfizer is one of the major manufacturers of the, of the vaccine. Well, he is completely boosted. I think he's, three, he's received three boosters, but you know what? He's gotten COVID twice in the last two months. And so yesterday he was on the television and the commentators literally asked him, how can you expect people to believe what you're saying when, in fact, you who are fully boosted got COVID twice in, in the last two months? And you know what he said? The, re- the fact that I took the vaccine and was boosted is why I'm still alive. And the commentators accepted that explanation. So the point I'm making is is that groupthink has already is, is has already demonstrated to be successful. So what is now the solution? And I pondered this and I pondered this and as you know, my solution has always been to create a black political party. I don't know that that's gonna happen in my lifetime. So I said, well, well, in the absence of a black political party, what can we do? And the only other thought that I could come up with is that black people need to move, literally move from transfer their registration from the Democratic Party and become an independent. Because if you notice, the Republicans have their, they have their tribe unlocked, on lockdown. The Democrats have their tribe on lockdown. Who are, the, who are, who are black people? But there's always the fight for the independence. Always the fight for the independence. So maybe we need to maybe we need to move from the Democratic Party to the Independent Party and see if anybody will fight for us. Will they fight for us then? Do you think it is worth it uh, to actually? Uh, bring yourself aboard a, a, a task like that, which would involve time and effort and energy and money, and come to the realization that what you were thinking in the first place was exactly right. Well, it wouldn't involve money because all it does is all it involves is a change of registration from Democrat to Independent. So it really wouldn't cost money per se. What I'm hoping is that if enough people move from that tribe that tribe and and tribal thinking move to the independent party, then people will have to the Democrats will have to recognize that they no longer have a dedicated, captivated tribe that they can count on. Mm-hmm. Because if that doesn't happen, they're black people don't have a prayer left. And we, we, we saw that. There is no People of Color Coalition, and we heard that last week coming out of Los Angeles, didn't we? There is no people. Black, black, anti-black sentiment is so ingrained, so ingrained, that black people are on their own. And we've got to figure out a, a survival strategy, because ain't nobody coming to our, our help but us. The anti-black sentiment is just too strong and too pervasive. Hmm. Wow. Um, you accept that as a, as a reality that we should start there with the recognition that we do have 
formidable foes. And it looks like they are in control of substantial amounts of our power. Unfortunately, that is the situation that we find ourselves in. And, and, the, and the sad part is, you know, if you look at what's happening in the politics in New York, every ethnic group is unapologetically looking out for themselves. So you, I, I give you the example of what happened with the uh, specialized high school tests that our children take in middle school to go to high school, because those specialized high schools are the only places where our children can get a decent education that can prepare them for higher education. Initially, when our current mayor, Eric Adams, was running for, running for mayor, he agreed with the previous mayor, de Blasio, that the specialized high school test should be, should be done away with because it disadvantaged black students. But the Asian community in Queens rose up and said, absolutely not. And he backed down. So that's the Asian community. In Washington Heights, you have the Dominican community. And they, they, they primaried and ran an, a Dominican uh, candidate against a black candidate who literally solely fought for students in, in uh, New York City who were being uneducated in terms of the resources that were being given to them. It's called the Campaign for Fiscal Equity. And Robert Jackson almost single-handedly fought this fought for over 10 years. And yet still the Dominicans are now saying this is a Dominican community and a Dominican should, should represent this community. Black people don't have friends. So how do you amalgamate power if you don't have friends? The first thing is that we have to, and what we don't have, which is what we need, we don't have community, and that's what we need. We need to form community within, amongst ourselves, and unfortunately we just don't. And then, of course, the second generation of children who were born to mothers who were exposed to crack that second generation of, of, of those children, the, the children of the children of those mothers, are now wreaking havoc, not only in New York, but across the country. So it, we don't even have a cadre of youth who can come behind us and pick up the struggle. You don't see even a glimmer of hope at this point? You know, Eutrice, our children are in the streets beating up our their people who they should look to as their grandparents. How can you have hope? We, we're, we've got a couple more years on the face of this earth, right? I know I do. We've got a couple more years left. I'm going to do everything to try and stay as long as I can. But the children that we should be looking to, the children who we should be mentoring, the children who we should be educating and guiding, to take up the mantle so that we can pass the baton, they are so traumatized and so damaged and so destroyed that we, we it's the generation that's going to have to continue the struggle is our generation. 
so we will be in a state of inertia for, for some time. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to get out there and, and with my banner, honey. And I'm going to start beating. <laughs> I, whatever I got to do is what I got to do. Because inertia is not an option. No, it isn't. It isn't. Well, thank you for reminding us that we have to we have to get really serious and single-minded about things. Uh, some of us are still apologetic, uh, apologetic about seeing to your own interests as if it contradicts all the good work done during the civil rights era where we all hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But in the end, it is about seeing to your interests and protecting the turf you've already won. And it can't happen if we are a dissipated community. It, it won't happen if we are self-destructive. It won't happen. Sober words, Patricia, today from you. And thank you. Thank you. Henry from Chicago, you're next. You're on the air. Greetings, Eutrice. I hope all is well with you. So far, so good. <laughs> all right. Uh, interesting. I come after the great Patricia. Uh, and yes. Isn't it nice to hear her voice? Yeah. And you put me right after her, so <laughs> <laughs> the pressure's on me now. Um, what what she previously said is correct. One thing I had an issue with of what she said is when she talked about withdrawing from the Democratic Party to the independent, and then she said, who is going to advocate for us? And when she asked that, when she said that as a, I guess, as a statement or a question, the first thing that my mind is, we have to advocate for us. You know, we can't be looking for the Democrats or Republicans or even the Green Party or anybody to advocate for us. We have to advocate for us. And so, you know, when you talk about political power, and, and, and I've mentioned this before, because of the situation that we're in, you know, as, as you know, especially as black people, we, we don't have political power because we're not together. And the only way we can get together is persistence and patience. Now, I know we live in a microwave society where everything needs to be done now, but the thing is is that if we're going to play this game the way it's set up, and it, and it, is, not, it is not set up for us to have an advantage, but if you're going to play this game, you have to play it in a way where you have to set up the chess pieces and that's going to take time, that's going to take persistence, that's going to take strategy, because I think most of us don't think about, uh, you know, we always talk about building a third political party or a black political par party, and most of us don't want to put the work behind it. It's work that goes with building these type of parties to gain political power. So 
next month, uh, we will be on the 25th anniversary of the death of uh, Chicago's first black mayor, Harold Washington. And there is a there is a there is a documentary uh, that's out in the, the movie theaters now that talks about Harold Washington's run, uh, you know, and his and his uh, and his mayorship in Chicago. And what is expressed in that is the long history that Harold Washington had to go through in order to even get to that point and the support that he garnered. Because people think that Harold Washington just came out of nowhere and, and, and won, you know, won the uh, Chicago election in 83. No, that's not the case. Harold Washington was in politics 20 years before he even became mayor. And so, uh, and so when you think about uh, him and Gus Savage and all of those uh, all of those black politicians who formed the uh, Chicago Negro uh, the Chicago League of Negro Voters in 1959, all the way up to his election of you know being the mayor in '83. That's a process, and people kind of forget uh, when Harold Wash- Harold Washington ran for mayor of Chicago in the special election in '77 when. Uh, when uh, when when uh, uh, Richard Daly Sr. had died, and Washington came in a distant third. So this is going to be a process where, uh, uh, you know, it's not going to be an overnight success. And and think about this, Utrees. Most of the political movements, uh, most of the successful political movements, don't come off of uh, uh, the, their number one goal is electoral politics. Most of those successful political uh, movements go off of policy. Take, for instance, the recent example of the uh, of the Tea Party movement uh, ten years ago. They weren't boasting a lot of you know they weren't boasting like you know who's going to be their president and and and, and in a sense you know who's going to run for senate you know. They did get some seats in, you know, in 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 the uh, in the house, but at the same time, what was their main objective? Their main objective was to uh, was to uh, uh, eliminate o- o- what they called Obamacare, and it garnered a lot of attention, and it garnered a lot of support. And this is when the Republican Party basically kind of, uh, because a lot of the people who supported that movement, uh, you know, were Republicans. But the original, the original crafters of that particular movement uh, did not like a lot of the policies that the Republicans were doing, so they kind of like went on their own. And then next thing you know, you get the Republican Party who basically kind of uh, 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 t- hijacked that whole movement, and then it became a Republican movement. So it's, it's, it's all about policies that, that I think political parties get strong off of. Because I think that connects more to the everyday movement than just somebody who, you know, who we got to vote for this person and we got to vote for that person. And you, Trees, I think you talked about this, too, about homegrown leadership. And when you look at the case of Harold Washington, that was a person that the people selected to run for mayor. Because he had a long political career in Chicago and in the Illinois and in the U.S. Congress. And so they selected him. 
he initially didn't want to run for mayor in 83. He actually did not want to run at first, but then he, he made a challenge to them. He said, get me 100,000 people to register to vote and raise a million dollars, and if you do that, I'll be your man. And what did the black political leadership at that time do? They, they, they got 100,000 people to register to vote, and they raised a million dollars. That is political organizing. That is the, 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 the basis of political power when you can do something like that. And you can select a person who is homegrown and with the people. And by the way, it was a very slick way uh, of giving people an assignment. Um, it, it was genius to, to do it that way. Basically, he was saying, don't look to me to take on 100% of the responsibility of running for office. This is, this is what we are supposed to be doing together. Mm-hmm. So you have a role to play. Prove it, and I'm, I'm okay with, with siding with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was exactly. a very good tactic. Exactly. That's why we say Harold Washington is the greatest political mind out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Where do you think, let me ask you personally, where mm-hmm. are you? Where do you place yourself right now politically? Well, obviously, um, because, of, you know, I said a few minutes ago, uh, people that are, you know, associated with me, that live by me, that look like me, we don't have much political power. So uh, I, I know the basis of your question from yesterday and today is, you know, uh, is, is about elections and what do we do in regards to elections. And um, some of your previous callers, uh, you know, have talked about local elections being more important than national elections, because obviously local elections um, uh, are more prevalent and they have more effect uh, on the basis of the people that live in those particular districts and governments. And so here in Illinois, we have a governor's race uh, between uh, the the current governor, J.B. Pritzker, and the incumbent, uh, Darren Bailey, who is a what they label a Trump Republican. Now, I'm going to go against my political ideology and actually vote for the lesser of two evils. And I say it because of the fact that uh, if you if anybody knows Illinois history or Illinois political history, um, there has not been a Illinois governor that was that was from uh, south of Springfield that has been uh, in, in over 60, 60 years. And if anybody knows the political history of Illinois, down south people don't like Cook County people, which is in you know which is where Chicago is at. And that is that is it, that is including anybody, black, white, whatever. Down south, down south Illinois don't like uh, Cook County people. So Darren Bailey is 
is is near. I think he's near uh, St. Louis. I think that's his. Uh, that's where he grew up at. So he is a down south politician uh, person. Now, take the example of of what happened in Jackson, Mississippi, where the governor of that state had control of the federal funds to actually, you know, uh, try to fix or maintain the water system in Jackson. So I thought about that here in Illinois, and I'm like, what will happen if Darren Bailey becomes governor and he all of a sudden wants to withhold funds, you know, from, from, from the feds, you know, going to places like where I live at, you know? And we've already gotten reports uh, in, the, in, the, in the last couple of months about high levels of lead in certain Chicago uh, neighborhoods and uh, places in the Chicagoland area. So, you know, I, I, you know I, the thing is, is that I am not looking for him to turn Chicago into Detroit or, or uh, you know, or any of the places that, uh, you know, that water is being contaminated because I actually see this as the new biological warfare against black people. Well, we have to keep it there for the moment, stick a pin in it. I want to thank everybody for conducting such a great class today, uh, crammed with information and delivered just so wonderfully, just peer to peer. This is what we ought to be doing to educate ourselves. Thank you so much. And let's join each other again tomorrow and do some more talking. Bye-bye.